Like Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino and Danny Boyle, Edgar Wright is one of those filmmakers who's become synonymous with an expert use of music in his work. As well as having collaborated with composers such as Nigel Godrich, Stephen Price and David Arnold, he's also deployed source cues to maximum effect in every single one of his projects, from offbeat comedy classic Spaced to the ridiculously entertaining Cornetto trilogy. It's thus an absolute delight to welcome him to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast in which directors, writers, actors and musicians discuss the sound of the screen with me, Edith Bowman. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain Edgar's new film, Baby Driver, recently premiered at the South by Southwest Festival in Texas to great acclaim, but we'll invite him back to talk more about that in August when it gets a general release. Suffice to say, the soundtrack features in excess of 35 songs. In the meantime, we're going to reflect upon a CV that includes Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End and Scott Pilgrim, not to mention the postmodern TV show which made his name. Um, I'm going to give this an official title of the Edgar Wright Fluffer episode. Oh my god. <laughs> But it is because we're excited. <laughs> well, it is because we're, we're looking forward to the new film. Five months' time? Four months' time? Yeah, Baby August. Driver? Yeah. We'll get round to Baby Driver maybe very briefly in a bit because I'm not sure how much you want to share with us. But good God, you and music. Where do we start? How do we start? It's based, I guess. So or is that, does no. that count if it's a, a TV yes, show rather does. than it's a film? Yes, it does. It's on a screen. Yeah, okay. For sure. With you and music, it's part of the furniture for you with how you create things. Fair? Yeah. A lot of the movies that I really loved growing up had really strong soundtracks. And, and not just scores, but films with source tracks in them, like existing songs. Like? American Wealth in London. influence because all the songs are on theme it's like every song you can think of with the word moon in there and several different covers of blue moon Quite a lot of the John Ladders films, actually. I always like the way that he used music in his films, in Blues Brothers, obviously, but even in things like Training Places, the doo-wop music and stuff.
only work for me. American Graffiti. <laughs> I think American Graffiti was actually one of the first ones that just had wall-to-wall songs and no score. And I think even at the time it was quite revolutionary because it's about 30 songs on that soundtrack. And it's just wall-to-wall sort of rock and roll hits. Why do fools fall in love? like jukebox movies so I was a big fan of scores but I think particularly those kind of movies that would have either a theme or be counter scoring Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. And then later, I think, when Reservoir Dogs came out, I think that was a new era again where somebody was sort of taking it to the next level. Reservoir Dogs is a great example of where the music started to penetrate the narrative. Yeah, and it's an interesting one because I think American Wealth is on a theme, American Graffiti is setting the time, but Reservoir Dogs, it just happens to be on. They just happen to be switched on to K-Billy Super Sound of the 70s <laughs> marathon weekend. And so it's got actually nothing to do with the movie itself, but it becomes part of the tone and it's really interesting. Talk about space then. How did music come into the conversation prior to making space? I think in space, there was very few songs written into the script. I think maybe for the clubbing episode, I think Simon had written something into the script. nothing about the score written into the scripts at all and I think what happened is as I started editing that show I started putting some tracks on that worked I was 
my own music supervisor essentially on that show because I used to edit it around the corner from here in Rathbone Place and then just around the corner from there was the old Virgin Megastore. So I think I must have spent about £200 just on CDs. <laughs> but I tell you what I have on the space is I sort of found the odd track that I liked that I thought would work well and it was usually around that time it was kind of I guess it was Big Beat and whatever the down tempo version of that was like Loungecore I guess that's what it was. Yeah, so Big Beat and Loungecore <laughs> songs like Bentley Rhythm Ace and those sort of things. <laughs> I think then what I did is because I just needed more stuff. I would just go scouring for other artists that were like that. And so that led me down like a rabbit hole of the Japanese bands like Fantastic Plastic Machine, Cornelius, all sorts of things. Partly some songs that I already liked, then finding alternative artists that fit that brief. Bands like The All-Seeing Eye, then would yeah. lead to sort of The Sons of Silence, who was lesser known ones. So I think that's kind of how that came about. It was both having the jumping off point and then scouring for lots of other kind of weird tracks. This is basic plucking or the Staunton lick. Hold down the chord of C, pluck a fretted bass string with the thumb of the right hand, and pluck the third, second, and first strings all together with the first, second, and third fingers of the right hand. And then in the second series, Lemon Jelly came along. And I remember literally I was reading like a, a review either in the Enemy or the Guardian or something of the Lemon Jelly EP and I said, oh, that sounds like a space type band. And then when I got those EPs, it was like it was slathered all over the second series. I love the idea of you going shopping for it. I did. I'd be clacking through when they used to have the sound of CD jewel cases. <laughs> now it's gone back to vinyl again, but that's sort of a particular set. sort of particular time and a place and a sound of standing in Virgin going clack, 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 <laughs> clacking through all the jewel cases in the dance section and just buying things sight unseen as well. Mm. And just like buy compilations and say, oh, this looks like it might be interesting. Going home. For one song that for you For one know. song out of like 15. <laughs> I've still got all those CDs. I was going to ask you if you still have a CD I, I, collection. I do. I'm not sure I have a player, but I've never thrown out the CDs. And in fact, I was just in the process of moving house and I couldn't bring myself to throw them out. So I still have them all. 
Crashes with storms. Like storms. But the, some of the ones that were, like, were in space are so, like, you know, they've all got coffee stains on the jewel cases, you know, they're well-used CDs, you know? Collector's items. Yes. And then sometimes with those things, there would be stuff that we'd use in the show that um, we wouldn't be able to clear on a CD. There was this Star Wars remix that we used in space, which was not on the soundtrack album. People always used to give us shit. It was by a band called Fader Gladiator, and it was a dance remix of the Imperial March. And we used it in the show, but uh, it is not on the soundtrack album, I think because the band themselves hadn't cleared the sample. So I don't quite know how it's in the show, but nobody tell Channel 4. Music and comedy, there's a wonderful tie-in. When you intrinsically weave music into comedy, you know, talking about clearance, you have to have that cleared before you even start shooting because otherwise that can cause all manner of problems, obviously. Yeah, I think particularly in Shaun of the Dead, having done Spaced where none of the music was written into the script, then with Shaun of the Dead, in a couple of cases, there are songs that are written into the script. And also, I seem to remember that we made a CD of music to read the script by. Because me and Simon, when we were writing, we used to listen to score all the time. We would listen to Goblins, score for Dawn of the Dead. score for Suspiria like John Carpenter soundtrack albums particularly The Fog (laughs) and uh, Assault on Precinct 13 another John Carpenter soundtrack album like listen to spooky music and then there would be a couple of like dance albums that would have uh, again these like dance compilation albums exactly the kind of things that then never end up on itunes they sort of like came out on cd once never to be 
revived and there was some <laughs> compilation of like horror kind of music remixed into dance music i'd have to get back to you on the, <laughs> the name of it was but it's in that box uh and then also the sons of silence who've done some music on space they had a couple of b-sides that were like sort of weirder kind of like, almost like horror sort of music and that's how they ended up doing the score in the movie like two of the guys from that band but in the case of actually songs specifically mentioned in the script, the Queen song, Don't Stop Me Now, was always in the script. And the idea really was we wanted to have this setup where this jukebox that was in the pub was on random and would just start playing the worst possible song at that moment, or the most incongruous song. So earlier in the film it starts playing If You Leave Me Now by Chicago when Simon's already suicidal about his girlfriend. <laughs> and then later when the zombies are attacking, it plays an utterly joyous song. underrated song and I don't want to claim credit for it so you booked me now however <laughs> back in like when we were making the movie that song was so sort of underused it isn't even in the Queen musical We Will Rock You they never sing Don't Stop Me Now which to me was the most obvious <laughs> show tune that Freddie Mercury wrote so I saw the Queen musical and I love Queen but I did not care for the musical at all <laughs> and Don't Stop Me Now was not featured in it and that just compounded my decision to use Don't Stop Me Now in the movie I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Queen I'm going to resurrect I'm gonna use, it I'm going to use that song in a way that the Queen musical doesn't I read an interview with Brian May later that he confessed to hating Don't Stop Me Now. And he also you confessed... you hate Don't Stop Me Now? Well, I think at the time that it came out, Freddie Mercury had got his own PR guy separate from the band. And he used to annoy Brian May by going, Don't Stop Me Now for single guys. Gotta use Don't Stop Me Now. So Brian May just admitted to actively hating the song because it was like, this guy would go on like that all the time. So I think that's why <laughs> Freddie's absence is not in the musical. <laughs> so it's funny to me, actually, that we used it in the film and we had to clear it before we started filming. Our film was not a, a big budget film, so it's actually thanks to Queen that they actually gave it to us at a decent rate. Yeah. 15 years ago, some bands were just completely off limits. Led Zeppelin might charge like a quarter of a million for a track. But I think the Queen Don't Stop Me Now one, they gave it to us for like 15 grand, which is amazing and we wouldn't have a scene without it. choice if Queen said no our B choice for the the zombie fight scene was Rasputin by Boney M and we even we even had sort of roughly tried it out in choreography to see what it would be like 
I mean, it, it, it's a great song and it would have been a funny scene. But I think sort of the Queen song is a bit better known internationally and I think Rasputin, probably only people in this country in Germany know oh, that song. <laughs> oh man, what you haven't heard that in so long. The record box scene as well. Yeah. So were, were all those specific records written into script? It was all written into the script, and within that scene where they're throwing records, that was an, another interesting one, clearance-wise, because you could say any album, but if you saw the cover, you had to clear that album. So if you watch the scene carefully, some of the covers you see, and some of them you don't, and that's usually because <laughs> the artists who let us use the cover said yes, and the artists who didn't. Let's use the cover said no. So you don't see either Prince album. I can't remember if you see the Stone Roses album or not. I have a feeling you don't. don't but that's only do. because like only two of the three members got back in touch. I'm pretty sure you don't see the Stone Roses album. You definitely don't see um, Dire Straits. And we really tried to get the clearance for the Brothers in Arms cover and didn't. These mist-covered mountains are home now for me But my home is the lowlands And always will be Someday you'll return to Your valleys and your farms And you no longer burn to be brothers in arms. You do see Sade. Sade, Diamond Life. Sade said yes. So, <laughs> the funny thing was that Sade was okay with being trashed. That was amazing. Me and Simon were so impressed that Sade had actually signed a release.
definitely see Blue Monday, New Order, let us use it. But we wrote all of those into the script, and the other one that we tried to clear, and then we wrote it out of the script, ironically, is the other option for the Prince bit, where it's like, Sign of the Times, Purple Rain, <laughs> Batman soundtrack, chuck it. I remember the sort of, I had all of the albums and then the Batman album was the first one I thought, mm, one of these things is not like the other, this one's not quite as good as the previous album. Keep busting. But previously in one draft we did have David Bowie in there and it was going to be like Ziggy Stardust, Scary Monsters, the Labyrinth soundtrack, chuck it. So it was like Keep 2, Throw Labyrinth. And I think we got in touch with somebody from his kind of office. David Bowie definitely didn't say this, but somebody working for him in PR said he's a bit touchy about Labyrinth. <laughs> so we never pursued it any further. You remind me of a man. And listen, I, I don't hate the Labyrinth soundtrack. I would at least say um, Underground. No, no, I'm not so sure about Magic Dance, but I like Underground. No one can blame you for walking away too much protection Life can't be easy But down in the underground You'll find someone true Down in the underground mentioned Blues Brothers earlier mm. and when I was at school I would come in and I had it on VHS and I would put it on every night when I went to bed and kind of my mum would come in and switch off at various points. One, two, one, two, three, four. There's something brilliant about the way that music's used in that film. Yeah. The car chase is phenomenal and it really made me think about Hot Fuzz. Mm. Was that something that you thought about? I had a sort of opposite thing to what you did with Blues Brothers is because we don't really have a VCR in our family but I did have a record player and I had the Blues Brothers soundtrack so I saw it on TV and I just listened to the soundtrack all the time. Now ladies and gentlemen it is the distinct pleasure of the management to present to you the evening star attraction. Here they are, back after their exclusive three year tour of Europe, Scandinavia and the subcontinent. Won't you welcome from Calumet City, Illinois, the show band of Julian Jake and Elwood Blues, the Blues Brothers. I think with the Hot Fuzz, the idea with the songs and that was it was... I always like, thought that like glam rock sounded like it fit with cops. And I guess because the cops in Somerset are a little... Um, I don't want to say backward. <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from Somerset. <laughs> But I will say this, when I was growing up, pubs would always have some like 70s tape on and stuff. So I think in my head, those things are always linked. There's a lot of glam rock tracks in Hot Fuzz. There's something about the beat 
feels like sort of cops walking down the street and stuff. So all those things like Cozy Pal and Goody Two Shoes, Sergeant Rock, Blockbuster by Sweet, it's all like thumping, marching down the street music. So I guess that was the overall idea with that. fun putting that soundtrack together because it's wanted to be that all of the source music in it was very English and yet all of the score was very American sounding so it's this clash of little England pop music from the 70s and 80s crash landing with this Michael Bay Tony Scott score I wanted to ask you about, about composers and what forms the decision on who, who you work with because you've worked with David and Stephen Price, Nigel Godrich as well mm. and they're all very different. What are the thought processes and, and how you decide on who you work with? I'm very loyal with other crew members and stuff and I always feel bad like if I've like used different people on different movies because it's in no way like a knock on any of their abilities. I think I'm sort of maybe um, so greedy that I want to work with lots of different people because everybody separately has done amazing stuff in the films and, and, and me like using different composers isn't in any way like a comment on what I thought of what they did. Mm. Like, I mean, what Nigel did with Scott Pilgrim is incredible. What David does with Hot Fuzz is amazing. And in fact, they're releasing that on vinyl this year because his actual full score has never been commercially released and it's coming out on vinyl this year. funny as it is because the reason it works so well his score is because it's so straight faced and it's so big sounding so there's something amazing about having like a big score for guys running around Somerset it's a big sort of Hollywood score for a, you know a little English town and that's just funny so there's no like winking in the score really it's just like you could take a lot of that score and put it on a Jason Bourne film and it would work you yeah. know?
with Scott Pilgrim, like Nigel Godridge had never done a score before. But within that film were several musical artists playing like different bands. So different musical artists playing different characters in the movie. And so I thought it would be good to have somebody like Nigel, who's, you know, a great rock producer, to be the overall composer and, and also in charge of the mixing and engineering of all those separate tracks. So, so he helped me sort of find the artist. And to be honest, I think a lot of the talent came on board that film because of Nigel, you know, more than me in the film necessarily. Because, I, you know, of the project and Nigel being involved in it, every artist was up for doing it. Like, so we had Metric, Broken Social Scene, Cornelius, Beck, you know, all doing songs for the movie, which was great. Mom. And then his arranger was Stephen Price. Stephen Price was the music editor on Scott Pilgrim, and then he became Nigel's arranger, and they got on like a house on fire. And then, funnily enough, this is a true story about Steve Price. I'd met him even earlier because after Hot Fuzz, I was starting to write Baby Driver. This is as far back as 2007, wow. 10 years ago. And I, before I'd started writing, I had some ideas for songs I wanted to use, and I needed a music editor to help me break them down. Live producer Ronaldo, who's a good music editor who could help me with this stuff, and Steve Price came up, so I met him 10 years ago. So then he, he ended up working as the music editor on Scott Pilgrim and Nigel's Arranger.
Then after that, Alfonso Caron emailed me and he said, I need a music editor for Gravity. What do you think of Steve Price? I said, Steve Price is a genius, you should hire him. And then during that process of Gravity, which then takes like sort of two or three years, within that time, Steve is doing temp music for the animatics for Gravity. He also does the score along with Basement Jacks for Attack the Block, which I executive produced, which Joan Cornish directed. So Attack the Block is essentially his first score with Basement Jacks. Then around the same time, and this is before Steve works with us on The World's End, Alfonso has decided to stick with Steve as the main composer on Gravity. Probably against the studio's wishes, because they're saying, why would you use a first time composer on this massive movie? So to his credit, like Alfonso like stuck with Steve mm -hmm. Price. Steve Price wins the Oscar. <laughs> it was essentially his first full score. It's, it's just incredible. Like, you know, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And Steve is like one of those guys. And he's actually done, Baby Driver is nearly all songs, but Steve has done probably about half an hour of music as well. Mm -hmm. Like, so he's done score. And I thought maybe he wouldn't want to do it because it, there was not that much minutage and now he's a big time Oscar-winning Oscar Oscar uh, <laughs> composer. But Hey, but he's got you to thank for it. You can say You can that, have credit me. for that too. <laughs> but um, but also he was really wanted to do it because he was there right at the start when he sort of like before I'd even written the script. So I've been really lucky in terms of the composers I've worked with. You know, all of the people I've worked with, Dan Mudford and, and Pete Woodhead who yeah. did uh, Shaun of the Dead. It's great. I'd like them to do more scores. Is it obvious where you want to use score and contemporary track? Yeah, what you sort of got to do is, if you use temp score, you got to be really careful. You shouldn't temp with something that you couldn't afford. And then on the flip side, it's good to use quite famous stuff because then you won't get too attached to it. One of the biggest compliments I could pay Dan and Pete on Sean is that once I'd heard the score, I couldn't even remember what the temp music was. <laughs> You know, what's, what, I tell you what's really weird, but there's a funny thing with like temp scores and stuff, that is a bit of a malaise in films, and I think this is because of like digital editing. 
it's very easy to kind of do a, like a temp soundtrack for an entire movie now. And what starts to happen is people get used to that, and then they don't necessarily differ from that. Tony Scott used to do it a lot, and Ridley Scott does it as well. Actually, right back to Alien, in fact, is that there are temp tracks that are still in the movie. So Jerry Goldsmith did the score for Alien, but I think he fell out with Ridley because Ridley became attached to some temp tracks and kept them in the movie. I remember <laughs> in Hot Fuzz, we attempt the entire soundtrack with the scores from Man on Fire and Born Identity. So I knew the Man on Fire soundtrack, Inside Out, which Harry Gregson Williams had done, which is a Tony Scott film. And then the day that we were test screening Hot Fuzz in New York, so the test screening still had the Man on Fire soundtrack on it. And I went to the multiplex that we were test screening Hot Fuzz, and I had the afternoon off. And I thought, oh, I'll go and see Deja Vu, the new Tony Scott film. And then sitting in Deja Vu, he's using tracks from Man on Fire in his new movie. <laughs> so I'm watching Deja Vu, having a sense of Deja Vu, because it's like, oh, this is the track that's in Hot Fuzz that's playing tonight. It's like really strange. What is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Away, baby, let's go. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. We haven't talked about World's End. Mm. With World's End, one of the things that we absolutely wanted was that we thought it should be totally soundtracked by the music they would have been listening to in the opening sequence, which is set in 1990. <laughs> so I think there's a couple of songs that go past that into the sort of early 90s. But me and Simon made this like mega mix when we were writing, and it was about 300 tracks long. And it was like all our favorite songs from like 88 to like 94. Mostly concentrated on like indie songs and dance songs. Because again, it was that idea of they go back to their hometown. So they've done a, a pub crawl in 1990, which has failed. And then 20 years later, they go back again. And so the idea again is that pubs might be playing all these like 90s songs. Because again, like now, what we listen to in the 90s is now like 60s music. Those are the oldies. <laughs> Don't be afraid of your freedom. So it became very so obvious which songs to kind of use and th there's lots of songs that were on the theme to what the film's about because the Sick film is about... Oh yeah, I, I know that but it's one of those just, like... That, that was me. If you could you just replace one of them with me. That was me in that car kind of... Yeah. 
That's what's wonderful about what you did with that one in particular. Jagger Keith Richards song. It's a Rolling Stones cover, I'm Free, by the Super Dragons. Is it? It is. Island soundtrack is on Abco. The Rolling Stones label is because I'm Free is a B-side. And maybe it's not a B-side, but it's an album track. It was never a single. There you go. I've blown your mind. You have. I should know shit like this. songs in that movie that were the trickiest ones actually were that song the soup dragons because it was rolling stones and also the door song that we used alabama song there was a point when that was maybe going to drop out of the film and we really didn't want it to because we had played that in on set and during the post it was getting twice as expensive show me the way to the next whiskey bar oh don't ask why about those songs is they're quite melancholic. All of them seem to really work for a film where the theme is about the past not being as great as you remember it. So things like So Young by Suede and Come Home by James. It was just really fun putting that soundtrack together. Then we'll begin. And I also remember, like, we used to watch the chart show on ITV, and you used to watch the indie charts or the dance charts, and there'd be something like, what was the Sesame Street rave song called? Like, Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. Yeah. <laughs> 
and you think, what the? I mean, I remember I was probably at art college when that came out, and it was like things like that. And in some cases, they're like songs that people had entirely forgotten, like "Summer's Magic" by Mark Summers, that was like one of those very early rave sampley songs, you know, that like you'd hear like late night on Radio One. like that and the early Prodigy tracks, you know, was a certain type of sample heavy rave, like Charlie says, you it's know. It's like erotic rave, isn't it? Yeah, I used to like all that stuff. songs that have been forgotten so Summer's Magic was one of them and the only rap that bites and then also we used 20 Seconds to Comply by Silver Bullet which is great slightly forgotten sort of British hip hop Kylie song in there that was like, I wasn't always like a Stock Aitken and Waterman fan, but I really liked Step Back in Time. Can we use that one for like the disco scene? They was great like doing that soundtrack. So many of those songs I genuinely adore, you know. Baby Driver. Most of the films have had music moments in them where like the action is sort of choreographed to the music and I wanted to do a movie that was all like that. So the idea with Baby Driver is that the lead character played by Ansel Elgort is essentially soundtracking the movie himself because he's kind of plugged into his iPod or he's listening to the stereo at home or he's listening to the radio. And the premise is, is that he has been in a car accident when he was small and has tinnitus and he plays music as a salve to kind of like drown out the tinnitus. So as such then, throughout life, he's got this 
you know, it's become now a sort of habit where he can't really function without the right music playing. And then in the movie, he's a getaway driver to a kind of crime lord. And so really it's finding a way whereby your lead character is actually soundtracking the movie himself. Wow. That's basically the idea. Shop, let's talk it. The target is an armored truck, the perimeter trust, 10 a.m. sharp. Switch card, baby. Hit the long state parking structure. You start in the a.m. questions. I got a question, Doc. Why would I believe phones over here heard a goddamn word you said? He ain't even listening. Baby. The target is an armored truck at Perimeter Trust in Dunwoody, 10 a.m. sharp. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure and get a high vehicle that stays colder longer? It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start. Questions? You've been my driver for every job since we met. You're the best in the business. behind the wheel again. One more job and I'm done. One more job and we're straight. And how many songs roughly? I think there's like 35 songs on the soundtrack. <laughs> there's more than a double album's worth, which I'm already struggling with. Um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, and this one I think is probably the most eclectic soundtrack as well because I think it's an interesting thing these days is there's lots of bands that I listen to where I could not tell you what they look like at all yeah. because I there's not that many print music magazines anymore and there's no Top of the Pops or the Chart Show yeah. like, so, unless you watch their videos online. So there's lots of bands that I know very well that I couldn't pick any of them out of a lineup because I have no idea what they look like and there's no photo on the cover. I just listen to the songs and I don't know what they actually look like. And then occasionally there's people like sort of that you do listen to, like I've been listening to Angel Olsen a lot. Mm -hmm. Then I saw a photo of her and it's like, holy shit. Why didn't somebody inform me that she was a goddess? And why was I not informed about this? I would have listened to this a lot earlier. But <laughs> okay, for part two in August then, I'm going to come armed with lots of music with pictures of all the artists. <laughs> So you can put it into... It sounds to, a bit too uh, much like musical Tinder. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Ega, thank you for sparing the time. No worries. Um, and I cannot wait to see I'm sorry Baby for Guana. objectifying Angel Olsen like that. It's all right. You've got uh, you've got uh, Stephen Price's Oscar and Queen to, to take away and, and, <laughs> and wallow in the glory of. I look forward to August part two, if you're up for it. Of course. Thanks, thank Edgar. you. Many great tunes to feature in Baby Driver. That's Harlem Shuffle by Bob and Earl, rounding off part one of Soundtracking with Edgar Wright. My huge thanks to Edgar for taking the time to talk to us. Baby Driver is out in August and we'll get him back then to talk more specifically about that. You'll find a full track list for this show via edithbowman.com where you can also listen to all of our previous episodes. Nicholas Wind and Refn, John Favreau, Andrea Arnold, Ron Howard, are amongst those lying in wait. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK.
UK. And do tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. We'll have another episode for you next week and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.